Welcome to the Immigration Hour. Uh, it is great to be with you. This is your host, uh, Charles Cook, uh, from Cook Baxter Immigration. Uh, it's been a couple weeks. I'm sorry about that. I had a little bit of travel. Uh, but I'm back now. Uh, plus, with the impeachment trial, there really wasn't much to talk about in the context of what was going on uh, in uh, in the immigration world. There, um, Senate Bill 386 is kind of frozen, uh, a little unclear when and if there'll be a vote on that. But a big piece of news dropped yesterday. We're going to spend today's show talking about public charge and what that means for immigrants and non-immigrants to the United States. Uh, last Earlier this year, uh, and really starting a couple of years ago, the administration had uh, started a process uh, to try to uh, exclude and to keep from receiving both immigrant and non-immigrant visas as many people as possible uh, based upon every law that's in existence. And for the, the longest time, the idea of public charge has been in our immigration laws, really going back uh, uh, more than 100 years uh, to uh, uh, looking as public charge as a, um, as a ground of inadmissibility and deportation. Basically, uh, under federal law, uh, what you will find is that the immigration laws say that an individual who is likely at any time to become a public charge is inadmissible to the United States. Um, now, think about that. Um, when, uh, when you are looking at somebody, how do you tell whether somebody is a public charge? Well, let's look first at the actual statute, which we'll find in uh, 212A4 of the Immigration Nationality Act. Uh, 212A4 of the Immigration Nationality Act uh, says uh, about this process uh, exactly what you would think it would say in the context of the law. Uh, not a whole heck of a lot. Um, you know, when, when this charge, when this idea was first written in the Immigration Nationality Act, uh, it was a long time ago. There, there really weren't, uh, the federal government itself really wasn't into publishing super detailed regulations about the process uh, and uh, really wasn't uh, focused on uh, what that actually, you know, what, what these words meant. I, I, the Congress simply assumed that the officers in charge of the law would know what they were talking about. Um, and uh, when, you, uh, when you look at the language of the statute, what you see is something that's actually pretty basic, but must have had some contextual meaning and must have had some understanding uh, at the time it was written uh, to mean certain things. Uh, so let's look at uh, the INA Section 212A, which is the classes of aliens, foreign nationals, ineligible for visas, A4. Now, just so that you know, A4 comes after A1, which are health-related grounds. They want to keep people out that have diseases of certain kinds. A2, which are people of criminal and related grounds. Uh, A3, which are security grounds. And, uh, and then finally, A4. Now, A4 is... Uh, Probably the, the shortest of all these, uh, when initially written, it said this. Any alien or any foreign national who, comma, in the opinion of the consular officer at the time of application for a visa, comma, 
or in the opinion of the Attorney General, they really mean Secretary of Homeland Security, they never fixed this, at the time of application for admission or adjustment of status is likely at any time to become a public charge is inadmissible. So let's parse this. What is, and we're going to focus on DHS because uh, Department of State has already been pursuing this, and I think we've found uh, uh, the ability to understand how to how to fix those problems. And I think what we're going to see actually is a much stricter enforcement of this from super zealots uh, working at the USCIS. So let's parse this a little bit. Any foreign national who, in the opinion of the local INS officer interviewing a spouse of a U.S. citizen for adjustment of status, that officer believes is likely at any time ever in their lives to become a public charge is inadmissible or should be denied the visa. Now, think about that. At any time, aren't we all... Every single one of us, aren't we all going to be on public, the public dole at some point? We're taking Social Security, right? Oh, no, but I paid into Social Security. Well, yeah, you may have, but yeah, you didn't pay enough, and you're going to take out a lot more than you're using. Uh, so what does it mean uh, to, to, to be this public charge? What, is, what do the words public charge mean? Now, within 212A4, that's just A. B, it says this, in determining whether somebody is likely at any time to become the public charge, the officer at the local INS office shall consider the person's, the foreign nationals, age, health, family status, assets, resources, and financial status, and their education and skills. So if you are immigrating, you're infirm, 80-year-old dad to the United States, by definition, short of the foreign national being rich, they would become a public charge. Um, now, that's point one. Part two of B says, in addition to those, the officer at the local immigration office may, if they want, also consider any affidavit of support under 1183 of this title, Purpose of Exclusion, in this paragraph. What they're meaning there is some the sponsoring person. So let's say I'm sponsoring my dad. I am going to sign an affidavit, which is a contract between me, uh, the United States government, and the foreign national, my dad. And that contract says that the U.S. government or my dad for the next 10 years, not any time, not through life, but for the next 10 years, can come after me for money to maintain at least a poverty-level income. Now, I will tell you, I've done a, a search. I've done this for 30 years. The law has been in effect uh, uh, for this particular affidavit of support since 1996. And there has been, as far as I can tell, no federal action against any human being to collect monies from them when the foreign national has improperly used public monies. There have been a number of state-level divorce actions in which a spouse 
has gone, or ex-spouse, has gone after the former U.S. citizen spouse for support or alimony based upon that absolute support for the 10-year period. Uh, but as far as I can tell, and I'd love anybody to correct me otherwise, there has been no federal action on this. And even today, there's been no federal action on this. Um, but what's, what's, what's compelling about this second provision is that immigration lawyers for a long time have treated the affidavit of support as the be-all, end-all of qualification to overcome public charge. And it's not. The consular officer or the local dude at the office, a local gal at the local immigration office, may consider it. They don't have to. And because it's discretionary, I doubt that you could get a federal court to intervene on this because the word may is used. And we know, of course, about the, um, the discretionary powers of the immigration service seem to be unlimited, uh, absent an extraordinary abuse of discretion. Um, public charge provision then goes on to say, um, which is what's referenced here, that if you are applying for your spouse or child or parent, uh, you have to fill out uh, the affidavit of support. And if you're classifying, uh, if you're applying for other relatives, you have to fill out the of support. And employment-based immigrants have to have an affidavit of support if the uh, employment-based visa is sought by a relative of the foreign national uh, who has significant ownership interest in the company. Uh, so this is, this is actually really quite a powerful uh, statement. Now, the, the whole um, idea of public charge has, um, has some exceptions. VAWAs uh, don't apply for that. U-Visa applicants don't apply for it. T-Visa applicants don't apply for it. But that, that's it. That's the law. There's nothing else here. Uh, based upon, and there, there really hasn't been any um, regulatory details uh, up until now of, the, uh, of what these rules actually mean. So why are we faced with this dilemma? Well, back in October, um, the public, public charge was supposed to go, supposed to go uh, uh, live. Uh, by October 11th, literally four or five courts around the country had issued injunctions, some of them nationwide, some of them local. Uh, they were uh, upheld or struck down. Uh, but finally, one of those from the Second Circuit made its way all the way to the Supreme Court in an emergency motion by the Trump administration claiming there's an emergency on this. Now, the fact that the... Uh, Supreme Court even touched this case is, in my opinion, troubling, because there is no emergency on this, none, and and that's evident by the fact that the Department of State has been enacting these similar rules, and there's been no emergency. There's you know yes, people have been denied, but people are over can overcome those things um, for the most part. So it's no real emergency here. What happened, though, is uh, at least a couple of the Supreme Court justices do not like nationwide injunctions. I think they don't like them when they don't go for cases that uh, you don't like, but do like them when they do go to cases you don't like, like DAPA. So what happened was, yes, on Monday, Supreme Court, in a 5-4 ideological decision, said that the stays initiated by the lower courts except 
for the statewide stay out of the Illinois Federal District Court, which stays these cases, stays this law in Illinois. Now, oddly enough, that's where all the cases are filed. The Chicago lockbox receives all these cases. So does that mean because USCIS cannot enforce this regulation in Illinois that it can't enforce it anywhere because all the cases start there? Interesting question. We don't know the answer to that question. Now, this, of course, were rules published by nativist uh, Steve Miller um, and his minions uh, at, the, at uh, USCIS. Uh, the uh, decision itself is... Um, you know, really not much of a not much of a decision. Uh, it just says this. This is the entire decision of the court of 5-4. The application for stay presented to Justice Ginsburg and by her referred to the court is granted. The district court's order, this is from New York, of October 11, 2019, granting a preliminary injunction are stayed pending disposition of the government's appeal in the Second Circuit and disposition of the government's decision for writ of cert if such writ is timely sought. Should the petition for writ be denied, this stay shall terminate automatically. In the event the for writ of cert is granted, this stay shall terminate upon the sending down of the decision of the court. Period. That's that's the whole decision. There is then a three-page decision uh, in the concurrence from Justice Gorsuch, uh, which uh, Justice Thomas joins. Oddly enough, um, not from uh, anyone else on the majority, uh, which really goes on to attack... Uh, nationwide injunctions, but it does drip with a little bit of sarcasm. Um, it starts out this way, that on October 10th, the Department of Homeland Security began, or 2018, began a rulemaking process to define the term, quote, public charge, because it literally had never been defined before. Approximately 10 months and 266,000 ignored comments, oh, they didn't use the word ignored, comments later, the agency issued a final rule. Litigation swiftly followed with a number of states, organizations, individual plaintiffs variously alleging the new definition violates the Constitution, the APA, and the immigration laws themselves. Uh, They were enjoined um, uh, around the country. Um, And he goes through kind of a litany of who and what and where uh, and really says, look, today the court rightly grants a stay allowing the government to pursue for now its policy everywhere save Illinois. So that, that basically, I think we have to go back to court. If we really want to say this, we go back to court in every single state and ask for a stay. Now, that's going to be hard to get now because the Supreme Court has now said we're not giving a stay, which means technically they wouldn't believe that the government can succeed, that the plaintiffs can succeed on the merits. So I think you have a, a, a long shot there. Um And he says this, Today the court rightly grants a stay, but in light of all that's come before, it would be delusional to think that one stay today suffices to remedy the problem, the real problem, and then he goes on about nationwide stay. So uh, that's kind of where Justice Gorsuch is, uh, and it was kind of a blistering opinion. Uh, Nonetheless, that case goes on. But let's now talk about the, the final rule uh, itself uh, that was published. We're going to do that in just a minute. We'll take a quick break here. At least I'm going to take a quick break. I'll be back in just a minute or a second for you uh, to talk about the details of this final rule. We'll be right back on the Immigration Hour. Welcome back. See, I know you missed me, right? I know you did. Again, this is your host, Charles Cook here, the Immigration Hour. Great to be talking with you today. So the final rule was published by the Department of Homeland Security 
on October 2nd. It was an amended final rule, technically. Uh, but this final rule um, was rather lengthy. Uh, and um, it was uh, the one that was published on October 2nd simply amended the final rule that was actually published on August 14th, 2019. And what they did in these amendments was make certain corrections uh, to uh, to the rule because they had rushed it to publication, um, and uh, there had been typos and and misstatements and all kinds of things that were not uh, not really uh, uh, you know let's say not really conducive to uh, good public policy and good writing. So let's take a look at the rule that was published. This rule is dozens and dozens of pages long. Um, put it in context um, uh, for here, I probably about 70 or 80 or 150 pages. Um, I'm not going to count the rules because it's all online, but let's take a look at what this rule is as we walk kind of through it so we can see where everything is. Uh, now, some of, these, some of the things in the rule is it talks about the analysis of the rule, uh, lots of definitions about things that uh, they're talking about. Uh, but this is this rule changes, change. So they're acknowledging there's a massive change. Interprets and implements the public charge ground of inadmissibility. Um, the Immigration Nationality Act renders inadmissible and therefore ineligible for a visa. Two, ineligible for admission, and three, ineligible for adjustment of status. Any person who, in the opinion of DHS, uh, and that, that includes Customs and Border Protection uh, or USCIS or, to some extent, ICE, I guess, when they charge grounds of removability, is likely at any time to become a public charge. Because the statute does not define a public charge, but in a related statute, Congress has articulated a national policy that, one, aliens, foreign nationals within the nation's borders not depend on public resources to meet their needs. Now, alien is anybody who's not a U.S. citizen, to be clear, but rather rely on their own capability and the resources of their family, their sponsors, and private organizations. Okay. And two, the availability of public benefits not constitute an incentive for immigration to the United States. Uh, and not to be honest with you, I've done this for 30 years, and I have yet to meet somebody who said, my goodness, I want to immigrate to America so I can get public benefits. Uh, you know, one of these myth mystical things that are out there that people believe that aren't true. In addition, the regulation says, the public charge statute provides that in making the inadmissibility determination, the administrating agents must at a minimum consider, as we talk about health, family status, etc., along with any affidavit of support. Uh, so we, CIS has been relying on this public guidance from 1999 that they issued, but it's never really been in the regulatory uh, and gone through the regulatory process. Um, now, it is uh, really interesting. DHS proposed the, and, and the following thresholds. For public benefits that are monetizable, DHS proposed a threshold of 15% of poverty guidelines for a household of one within a period of 12 consecutive months. So monetizable public benefits are cash benefits, SNAP, housing vouchers, and rental assistance. For public benefits that cannot be monetized, DHS proposed a threshold receipt during more than 12 months in the aggregate within a 36-month period. And then finally, they proposed a threshold 
to address circumstances where a foreign national receives a combination of monetizable benefits equal to or below the 15%, together with one or more benefits that cannot be monetized. In those cases, DHS proposed that the threshold for the duration of receipt of the non-monetizable benefits, non-monetizable benefits, be more than nine, more than nine months in the 36 months period prior to receiving the benefit. Uh, so they they go through this and they say you know what they're going to do, uh, how it's going to work, uh, and what they are. So let's uh, let's take a look at this uh, in some of the words they're looking at and how they did this. So now. Um, the receipt of public benefits, which is really the key here, did you receive as a foreign national public benefit, has said this. The definition of receipt public benefits consistent with an explanation. The new definition clarifies that an application or certification for benefits does not constitute receipt. So applying for them, you didn't get them, does not require receipt, but it could serve as evidence of your likelihood of receiving public benefits in the future. It also clarifies when a person receives, apply for, or obtains a certification public benefits solely on behalf of another person, and they do not consider the alien to have received the benefit. So you can apply for food stamps for your kids, and that doesn't count against you. And that has been lost in this shuffle as part of this. Um, and on the issue of likely at any time, they clarify that supposedly that a person is likely to become public charge if the alien is more likely than not at any time in the future to be on a public charge. It's determined on the totality of their circumstances. Um, and they've also included a new definition for the DERM's primary caregiver to account for a new consideration in the totality of circumstances who may, for persons who may not be currently employed or have employment history but are nonetheless contributing to their household by caring for others. Now, this actually was a positive thing. DFH defines primary caregiver as a foreign national who is 18 years of age or older and has significant responsibility for caring for and managing the well-being of a child or an elderly, ill, or disabled person in the household. Um, so let's look at a couple things, for example. Medicaid received by foreign nationals under the age of 21 and pregnant women. Uh, this is not to be considered as receipt of Medicaid and is not public charge. So pregnant women can continue to get emergency medical care regardless of their immigration status. And Medicaid under the age of 21 does also not count against a foreign national. Um, Medicare Part 2 low-income study in, of subsidy. Um, the, uh, as part of this, DHS has decided to exclude a foreign national receipt of subsidies from the public benefit definition, that actually was kind of a surprise that they did that. Benefits received by military service members and their spouses and children. Um, this is also clarified that that, uh, uh, that that does apply in certain certain circumstances for admission and adjustment of status. So um, it's to be excluded from consideration. So that was clarified. So we're good there. Um, and benefits received while in status that is exempt from public charge. So uh, some of those are U visas and T visas. We'll talk about those in a second here. And then, of course, public benefits received by children eligible for acquisition of citizenship. Well, I mean, they're U.S. citizens, so you can't consider those anyway. That, that would be, I think, overturned uh, as an equal protection uh, benefit. Now, one of the things they did here is they have expanded uh, – this idea of who is who can be judged by this to include people that are applying for adjustment a change of status 
in the United States. So this is really interesting. The DHS rule um, makes this change. It requires applicants for changes or extension of non-immigrant status to demonstrate that since obtaining the non-immigrant status, they seek to extend or change until the date the Immigration Service approves the change of status that they have not received one or more of the listed public benefits. Now, that means that when I'm applying for an H extension for a software engineer at a corporate client, I have to include evidence from him and his wife and children in my filing. So now I represent, and I always have, in my opinion, the foreign national and the company. But what if there's stuff the company doesn't want to know? This, this actually causes a massive conundrum for lawyers uh, and may subject the rule itself to challenge on that ground alone. There's also no statutory requirement for this. It doesn't. There's no statutory requirement for this, yet they put this into the rule. They even said this. Um, this final rule is not intended to apply to public ability to extensions of stay. Okay. Instead, we're exercising our authority to set a new condition for approval of extension of stay. Wow. The verbal gymnastics there uh, have me doing backflips. That the applicant established that they have not received any prohibited benefits since obtaining non-immigrant status. How do you prove a negative? How do you do that? How do you prove I didn't get something? It's like, have you stopped beating your wife yet? It's kind of a kind of a crazy thing. So we're, we're going to see how far that goes in the context of, uh, of this. Uh, but here, here's the new rule. As you'll find this in HCFR 248.1. Except for those classes, any foreign national lawfully admitted, including a foreign national acquired such status, blah, 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 uh, except where the foreign national seeks to change that is exempted by law, as a condition for approval, the foreign national must demonstrate she has not received um, uh, public benefits um, as redefined in this section more than 12 months in the aggregate within any 36-month period prior to this. And this applies for change of status. This is a backward looking. We need to look backward to see if you got it. There is no revised form. Remember, this rule's in effect now, right? In fact, the USCIS on their website on this says this, updated alert. Um, the Supreme Court uh, now allows us to, uh, to enforce this law. So uh, we're going to do it. You know, be careful out there. We're going to do it for you. We're going to come after you on it. But they haven't issued the new forms uh, or reissued the new forms, and they certainly haven't issued the new uh, uh, 539 uh, that we need to use to uh, apply for uh, the change and extension of status. So this is, uh, this is going to be really interesting how they're going to handle this. Um, and does it apply to reinstatement applicants, apparently for F-1 visas? Uh, it, it also applies forward-looking for people applying for adjustment of status in the United States, uh, as well as those coming to the airport. So um, how is CBP going to implement this? Is this another ground they can use to turn around somebody? Well, you only have $200? Well, if you only have $200, how are you going to live in the United States for six months on a visitor visa? I, I think we're going to see a rash of uh, these new inadmissibility grounds at the airport 
for people who aren't bringing enough cash or don't have valid credit cards and proof that they have a substantial line of credit. So basically what this rule really does is say immigration to America is only for rich people, ignoring the fact that virtually every one of our grandparents who came here or our parents who came here came here, they didn't have, you know, two pennies to rub together. All this story, you know, my grandfather came with five cents in his pocket and then then he, you know, he started Google uh, or whatever. Um, You know, how you come here does not mean that that's how you're going to end up, which is why this ground of exclusion has been very limited in its use, because it, it really wasn't designed to keep poor people out initially, but that's what the regulation does. And this whole idea of likely to become a charge at any time, wow, that is most definitely going to be abused. Um, they have a whole weighting factor about positive and negative factors, uh, heavily weighted positive and negative factors, for example, a heavily weighted neg- negative factor, though not, not, not an outright exclusion, is the use of public benefits for more than 12 months in any aggregate 36-month period. Um, a heavily a heavily weighted positive factor that the person has private health insurance uh, for the appropriate expected period of admission. That means anybody coming to the United States as a visitor is going to need to sign up for health insurance. They're just going to have to do it. The thing is, that's available. It's not that expensive. Um, we just need to get that word out that if you're going to be traveling to the U.S. in the future, make sure you've got a receipt for your health insurance uh, that you're going to have. So that 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 really that. Health insurance uh, for visitors to the United States um, is uh, easily available. Uh, I mean, all you need to do really is Google health insurance, visitor visa United States, and you'll come up with several of these. There's one at www.insbuy.com, uh, insubuy.com. Uh, there are several others that come up, visitorcoverage.com, uh, sevencorners.com, uh, g1g.com. Uh, there's, there's all kinds of uh, tourist visa health insurance uh, provisions out there. Um, and, uh, you know, we're going to advise our clients, for example, when they're coming to the U.S. on any type of visa going forward, that they have to have a health insurance policy in place because it's supposed to be a heavily weighted factor into context at the airport. Uh, It is uh, really going to be interesting to see if the Department of Justice or ICE actually uses or increases this or removes anybody. I've never had a removal case based upon public grounds. Um, But uh, it is really going to be interesting to see exactly how they're going to rule this. Now, let's take a look at um, what some of these uh, grounds are for um, what exemptions. For example... Uh, one exemption under the, under the new law um, will be that if you have a U visa, uh, you're not subject to it. Um, if you have a T visa, you're not subject to it. If you're a VAWA, you're not subject to it. Um, if um, you are uh, DACA, technically you're not subject to it. So let's look at these exemptions here uh, that are part of the program. So we've got the exemptions for individuals on the admissibility grounds here uh, that include, again, the T, uh, the S visa, uh, other uh, qualified aliens, um, uh, permanent residents uh, are admitted to the U.S. and such are not subject to it. So if you are a permanent resident, you can use whatever available public benefits you have. Uh, You can, of course, be um, if you leave the United States more than 180 days, you can be subject to it when you come back. 
because you, you then treated as seeking admission to the United States. So again, this is another reason not to let mom and dad stay out of the country for longer than they they longer than than six months. Uh, and of course, you know you have to be in the U.S. six months out of every twelve months to avoid currently any finding at the airport that they're going to take your green card away. Um, what other people aren't subject? Refugees are not subject. I, as, uh, asylees are not subject to this. Um, uh, U visa applicants, people applying for adjustment of status as U visa holders, uh, individuals applying for TPS are not subject to this or extensions of TPS. Um, uh, individuals uh, granted relief under the Cuban Adjustment Act. Uh, Nicara individuals, Harifa individuals are not subject uh, to uh, to those grounds. Um, uh, now, the INA uh, also says that there are other um, grounds of admissibility. Asylum applicants are not subject to it. Um, it is um, uh, DACA is not required to show uh, this. Uh, LPR or non-LPR cancellation of removal uh, are not subject to applying for the, to be subject to this. Registry is not subject to be applying for it. Um, uh, but what you have do have to know is, you know, what is... Um, what is uh, the the what are what are the public charge grounds? What are the things that you cannot do? What are the uh, what are the things that are considered uh, under the idea of receiving public benefits? And this is actually where I think a lot of people are scared about this, um, and they don't really understand. Um, uh, what that means um, and how they, uh, you know, how they can continue using or not using um, uh, the benefits that they may or may not be entitled to. Uh, and this is why we have to look at the facts and get the facts out there. So the following, I'm going to go through the following things which are not subject to public charge consideration at all, at all. They can never be considered. So if you're in an interview and they're considering these, you say, this is wrong, you can't consider this, let's look at those. First, Medicaid and other health insurance and health services uh, other than support for long-term institutional care. So clinics, rehabilitation service, prenatal care, emergency medical services, none of those subject you to public charge. So you can use those. CHIP, uh, the Children's Health Insurance Program, Peach Care here in Georgia, SNAP, so that's the Supplemental Nutrition Insurance Program, food stamps, uh, WIC, uh, the National School and Lunch Program. They cannot uh, be subject to public charge considerations, period. Um, so you do not consider those. Housing benefits, child care services, low-income home energy assistance program, emergency disaster relief, foster care and adoption assistance, Educational systems like Head Start um, and aid for elementary, secondary, and higher education, job training programs, in-kind community-based programs, non-cash benefits under TANF, such as subsidized child care and transit subsidies, cash payments that have been earned, such as Social Security benefits, veteran benefits, and unemployment compensation. And, and so those cannot be considered under the program. They are not subject to public charge. All right, that's a rather long list. So what is subject to public charge? Those would be cash assistance for income maintenance, supplemental Social Security, 
over the age of 21, uh, cash assistance for temporary assistance for needy families, TANF, uh, and state or local cash assistance program for income maintenance, often called general assistance programs. Acceptance of these forms of public cash assistance could make somebody inadmissible. However, the mere receipt of these benefits does not automatically make the person inadmissible. So let's be clear. We have a lot of people not using benefits that they and their kids are not are actually entitled to as U.S. citizens. That needs to stop today. Um, they are, in fact, entitled to these and uh, should, in fact, be using them to maintain their household under the laws as they're currently written. Now, uh, these, uh, these laws will go into effect shortly. Uh, they are wildly complicated. They cover things that have never come before. And this is why you need an immigration lawyer to help you understand this and make sure that every I is dotted and every T is crossed. Because remember, the new policy is to deny cases outright if, even if you don't fill in a form correctly. Just reject it or deny it. So you've got to get everything right up front or you face the possibility that you could, in fact, end up on the very short end of the stick. Wow, this has been a, a crazy day uh, on this, um, and I would encourage you to read the summaries that are available online. There's a number of great organizations out there that, you know, you, we don't need to rewrite everything for people. Um, the folks over at the Immigrant Legal Resource Center, ILRC, um, have a, a .org, have a whole series of uh, publications on public charge that are free to the public. Of course, you can Google uh, this stuff. Uh, NAFSA for foreign students has a great summary of this as well. Um, and um, the, uh, the USCIS itself on, on their website uh, has their own summary, uh, which I always take with a grain of salt, uh, but you need to take a look at as well. Uh, and then finally, you can uh, Google stuff on our, we have, a, of course, this podcast, and of course, our blog uh, at uh, immigration.net slash blog has information there as well. Till next week, this shows uh, Charles Cook of the Immigration Hour. From, oh, it's not Immigration Hour. Yes, it is at Cook Baxter Immigration. Till next week. Thank you.